Continuing where we left off last week, James chapter 5, beginning in verse 7, page 1013 in the, in the Bible in the back of the pew, if you'd like to use that one. Keep your Bibles open today. We'll be going uh, verse by verse as we walk our way through this text. So James 5, 7 through 12, this is God's word speaking to us by his Holy Spirit through those he has chosen to bring the word. Here is James. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, we confess together that you have brought us this word through the ages, through the centuries, by your providence You've ordained that we hear it today. You've brought into this gathering those whom you have chosen to sit under this sermon, under the preaching of your word, so that your spirit would speak through your word to them, to edify them, to build them up in Christ. Lord, we know all of that. And so we ask that you would help us to submit ourselves to your word this morning. Lord, submit me to your word Pray, Lord, that you would help me to be transformed by your word just as the congregation is that you've called under this pulpit today. We love you, Lord. We look forward to what you are doing in us as a church and in us as individuals for Christ's glory. Show us your glory and your word today. Amen. Well, today's passage, as I said, marks the beginning of the end. And you can, you can get that sense, can't you? The tone that, that last week reached that, that unnerving intensity at the end of verse 6, it, it changes. And James is, again, more gently pastoral with us and with his church. There's a, there's a sense of warning here, and, and we pick up on that, but, but it's not quite as hot as it was in, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. James is is beginning here to close his letter. And so he he brings together all of the themes that he has addressed for us so far as we've studied this book. Particularly, the theme of testing and suffering. But you'll notice also that recurring theme of how our words reveal what is in our hearts. It's sort of a thermometer. Trials, though, are the big idea. Trials are the big idea in James. Going all the way back to the very beginning of James, flip back there just a couple pages, 
James 1, verse 2 through 4. This is how he started the letter. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Why should we rejoice? Why should we count it joy when we meet these trials? Because, he said, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And we saw then, way back then, that God is creating in us a real holiness, a, a heart transformation that only comes about from testing. We are being heated, we are being pummeled, we are being purified by God in this life, not to abuse us, not to torture us, but to refine us, to create in us Christ-likeness. James went on to tell us that testing and trials are a gift from God for this purpose. James 1.18, of God's own will, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So he, he gave us these gifts so that he could create us to be a first fruits. And what is the fruit here? We are. God has caused us, if we're Christians, if you're a Christian, he's caused you to be born again so that you would grow and be the first fruits of the new creation. The first bit of the new creation popping up out of old creation soil. The church is to be evidence of that even now. Even in this life, even in this world, the new creation has begun. As Ephesians says, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. To be this fruit, to be this visible wisdom of God, we must, as we saw in 121, Receive with meekness the implanted word. That's the spirit. The spirit in us is recreating us in Christ's likeness. Here's the big issue. And this has been the theme in James since chapter one at the end. We've got to humbly submit to that process. False teachers, James told us, were trying to persuade the church that all they needed to do was say they had faith in Jesus, but, but they can continue to live in their old worldliness. And of course, James rebuked that error swiftly. True faith, saving faith, is that faith which unites us to Christ, submits us to his lordship, and it is that faith through which the Spirit is transforming us and conforming us to God's will. And with that, James has been showing us since then this is the beginning of chapter 2. It's been helping us to see what exactly the Spirit is creating in us. What that, what that looks like. What does this new creation look like? What does this, this plant look like when we compare it to our old life? The flesh and the sin that we're being compelled to turn from. And all of that brings us to the closing of the letter here, beginning in, in verse 7 of chapter 5. From here to the end, James gives the church ten commands. Ten commands. A lot of what he has been teaching us comes in these sets of, of ten commands. Not accidental. He's very, very Jewish in his Christianity. And, and here are ten final commands for living in the here and now. 
where we have already been born again, and we're beginning to be sanctified, but we're not yet complete. Now, six of these commands we will address today, and we'll do the remaining four in a couple weeks after Pastor Saunders takes us back into Galatians next week. But of those six commands that we're going to look at today in this morning's passage, the first command is be patient. So if you're taking notes, command number one, be patient. We see this in the first sentence of verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Telling us how long we have to be patient. This word, the, the, the ESV renders be patient. Your Bible might translate, if you have an older Bible, it might translate as be long-suffering. And even though that's an older phrase, it actually gets us a little closer to the mark. Long-suffering, despite what it sounds like, does not mean to suffer a long time. Rather, it means to be long-tempered. Right? We understand what it means to have a short temper. It means to have a short fuse, to be easily offended, to be quick to become angry, easily upset, shaken. The word James uses is be long-tempered. He uses the word in Greek, macro, thumos. Macro meaning big or long. Think macroeconomics, the big picture, large-scale view of the economy. And then the second part of that word, thumos, which relates to our temper, our anger, our passions. James is saying be long-tempered. Don't be easily rattled. Don't be easily frustrated. Don't be easily worked up. Okay. I won't be, but, but about what? <laughs> what are we supposed to have this long-temperedness, this patience in response to? Well, in the whole context of James's argument, going all the way back to chapter one, we are to be patient in our trials. Remember, these trials are what God is using to bring forth good fruit in us. So our response to trials is not to be anger or frustration or bitterness, Rather, the Spirit-led response to our trials is humble submission to God in the midst of trials. Recognize this. God is bringing you through exactly what each of you need individually in order to humble you and teach you that the sin in you, what is in your flesh, is worthless. But what is in Christ is immeasurably rich. Trials are a test of faith, but they aren't only a test of faith. Trials are shaping us in Christ's likeness. They are carving knives. They are chisels that bring out the form that God is creating in us. To use the analogy that the scriptures often use, trials are God's furnace, his smelting furnace. Think of Think of the different ores that are found in the earth, iron ore and copper ore and God, uh, gold ore and so on. The ore is that rough mineral that must be burned off, smelted in the furnace in order to derive the valuable metals. And the process is different according to the type of metal and the, and the type of ore. We're all different metals. We require each of us a different refining process. One person might need to see that they are trusting in their money more than God. And so God has a trial for that. Another might need to see that they're trusting in themselves, and God has a trial for that too. One person might need to see that they're idolizing their spouse, and another might need to see that they're neglecting their spouse. 
One person might have a sinful tendency towards anger. For another, it might be perfectionism. For another, dependence on some substance. For another, lust. And another, self-righteousness. And God, in his love for us, to refine us, he uses trials to burn off our idolatry. And that, that, that sinful self-confidence that would rather hold on to our old selves and our flesh. So we need to see that these trials that God gives us are tailor-made by God for each of our situations. The health trials that God has brought one member of the church through is likely going to be different than the work-related trials that he brings another one through which will be different than the marriage trials that someone else is enduring, which is different than the trials of loneliness that someone else is enduring. All of us are experiencing different trials, but all of the trials are heaven sent for a specific purpose. We are to be patient with the Lord as we endure these trials, knowing and trusting that God is bringing about good in us through what he sends. Secondly, second command in the text is we are to be patient as we await the precious fruit. Look at James 5, 7 to 8, so the second part of verse 7. James says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains? You also, like the farmer, you also be patient. That's an imperative here. It's a command. You also be patient. James is saying, look at the farmer, be patient like him. Behold, the farmer, see him. He plants his seed in the ground, trusting that the early rains will sprout the seed and get it growing, that the later rains will bring it to maturity, and then the harvest will come. We are to be patient like him. If the farmer, and most likely this is a reference to a grain farmer, this would have been their bread and butter or just their bread, most likely, this is a reference to a grain farmer. So let's say a barley farmer becomes impatient. And he attempts to harvest his crop in the midst of the early rains. So he, he planted in, in uh, September, and then the rain starts to come, and he says, oh, it's time to bring in the harvest. No. What's he going to get? He's going to get a muddy mess and some, maybe some barely sprouted seed. If he tries to harvest between the early and the late rains, he gets some tall grass. But if he waits, and if he waits patiently, and he allows the implanted seed to receive the good gift of rain from above, coming down from the Father of lights, if he's patient, and he allows his crop to grow to maturity, then come harvest time, what he will bring in is a crop that has reached its perfect end, its maximum usefulness, its fruitfulness. So what are we waiting patiently for? We're waiting for the fruit. That's a Bible word for the grain, for the whatever is growing. We're waiting for that. And the fruit in us is that holiness that the Spirit is creating in us. This early and late rain reference that James uses here, that is an allusion, a allusion, allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 11. 
So in that passage, Moses tells the people that God is bringing them to the promised land. They're about to go in, and in the land, God will provide the abundance, and he will fill his people. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 11, says this, But the land that you're going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain. See that reference? The early rain and the later rain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. So this this early and late rain reference that we see in James is meant to remind us of that Old Testament type and its New Testament fulfillment. The church is the people of God. By the new exodus, we've been rescued by Christ, our deliverer. We've been brought from slavery to sin into the kingdom, and he's creating in us, through the Spirit, a harvest of righteousness. Isaiah 61 says, For as the earth brings forth its sprouts, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to sprout up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to sprout up before all the nations. That's what he's doing in the church. That's what he's doing in you. Bringing you to real righteousness. You have legal righteousness before God in Christ. But he's creating in you a true this life holiness as he cuts away the flesh. Like the farmers in Israel who waited on the early and late rains to bring the crops, we are the farmers of the new Israel called to patiently wait for the crop of righteousness that God is creating in us. We patiently await the fruit that is growing in us because, brothers and sisters, we have to be patient because, brothers and sisters, Christian maturity takes time. A long time. There are no shortcuts to bringing about the fruit of the Spirit. None. For someone to become merciful, they must, by understanding the word and by the spirit and by trials, learn the devastation of their own sin, their need of Christ, and their undeservedness of Christ. Let a person deeply know the mercy of God in their own life, and then they'll become more merciful. But that takes time. For someone to become compassionate, They have to first experience suffering. We have to experience the temptations that come with difficult trials, and we have to know the pain that come with those trials. And when we have experienced these heaven-sent trials, we become more compassionate to others who are enduring them as well. Listen, if, if Christ himself was perfected through suffering, as Hebrews tells us, how can we expect that we would not require suffering in order to become like Christ. There are no shortcuts. There's no shortcut to teaching humility. Nothing. I can't tell you to be humble, and then you're just humble. 
the only way to learn humility is to be brought low. As a result of arrogance and overconfidence. There's no shortcut. There's no shortcut to to learning to be wise with what we say than to learn that what we say often sets the forest ablaze, right? There's no shortcut to learning contentment or gentleness or courage or boldness. All of these Christian virtues, all of these, these ways that are becoming more like Christ, all of these take time. The sin nature in us doesn't just rub off. Not easily. Though the condemnation is gone, though we are washed and purified in Christ, justified before God, the sin in our flesh remains as long as we are in the flesh. It's like the roots of a noxious weed that you can't get rid of, or a stubborn wart, or a deadly cancer. Our sin nature is inseparable from our flesh. But we don't realize that immediately, do we? We... we We repent, we turn to Christ, and we think, I'm there. I made it. I'm good. But it takes a lifetime for you and me to fully comprehend that there is nothing to boast in ourselves. Nothing save Christ himself. We're impatient, though. We're impatient as we wait to see the Lord grow fruit in us. And we're impatient as we wait to see the Lord grow fruit in one another. When when we're impatient regarding our own fruit, we become discouraged in the faith and and beat down in the faith, and we begin to doubt our salvation. When, when When we're impatient regarding others and their fruitfulness, we become self righteous and judgmental, and we begin to question their salvation. So in in regard to our own fruit, we're looking for this holiness to develop in us, as God said it would. And we look and we see it's not there, and we say, Lord, why do I struggle like this? Why do I struggle to love my brothers and sisters in Christ? I know I'm supposed to. I know that you've commanded me to. I've read the Bible again and again and again and again, but I can't. I know that the Spirit in me produces this. Why can't I just love them? the way that you commanded me to. Am I not a Christian? Lord, why am I so judgmental? Why am I so self-righteous? Why can't I be content? Why can't I be joyful? Why do I seem to be the source of problems again and again and again? Am I not really a Christian? Am I not born again? Do I not have the Spirit? Be patient. Be patient. The early rains and the late rains, those are trials. And, in, and through these trials, the Lord will bring forth his good fruit in you, but you must be patient. If you focus on the fruit and look for the fruit and strive for the fruit, well, the watch pot never boils, does it? Again, be like the farmer. He doesn't just lie there beside the barley plant, looking to see if it will grow, just watching. Rather, he trusts that through the Lord's provision, the fruit will come in its own time. And all along the way, what's he doing? He's working. He pulls weeds, and he pulls weeds, and he pulls weeds, and he asks Luke to help him pull weeds. (laughs) 
And he fertilizes and he shoes away the birds and the rabbits and he picks off slugs and snails and bugs that would do damage to the crop. He's preparing for the arrival of the fruit by focusing on the task that the Lord has him in the day. We also work, but our work in the in-between time, awaiting the harvest, our work is in the ordinary means of grace, gathering with the church, hearing and digesting the word of God, trusting the Lord through prayer, seeing by the Spirit the bugs and the slugs and the snails, where we are living according to the flesh, And where that is harming our souls. And so we confess that sin, repent of that sin. The other means of grace are singing to the Lord, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord and to one another. We're living in thankfulness together as a church body, encouraging one another, mourning with one another, receiving the Lord's Supper together, celebrating those who are coming into the faith in baptism together. We're giving in generosity. All of these are means that the Lord is using over time, slowly, bit by bit, to grow us in Christ-likeness. You can't rush it. Can you name one sermon that has changed your life? I hope you say no. But can you look at the steady preaching of God's word over 20, 30 years that has begun to change, begun, and I say begun, emphasis on begun, to change the way you view the world and yourself. Through these ordinary means that God has given us, when trials come, when the early and late rains come, we recognize them. Oh, this is from the Lord. This is from the Lord. This is what I was waiting for. And, And we're better prepared through this training, through the work that we do, we're better prepared to receive what the Lord is doing in us. The other way that we're impatient is in our relationship with others in the church. We expect other people to be where we are in the faith. And we grow frustrated when they're not. So someone who has been a Christian a long time might look at a younger Christian or a newer Christian and ask, why why is that? Why do they not realize that gathering with the church is a blessing and it ought to be a priority? Why, why do they not come to pray with us? Why, why are they always late for church? Is this not a priority for them? Or, or someone who has been a, a Christian for a few years might look at a brand new Christian and be angry that they're dressing immodestly or, or they're making really bad dating choices or they're using crude language or, or they're consuming worthless entertainment. And we get angry about it. Because of the slow way that sanctification works, it takes a while. It takes a while for a baby Christian to grow and see that all those vices that they're committed to are eating their soul. And they're likely to be costly. And her life is going to be more painful if she continues in them. It takes a while to see that. But sometimes it's like the mature Christian who's been given the responsibility to disciple this person. Instead, they completely forgot about the 10 or 15 or 20 years it took for them to grow in discernment and to grow in contentment with the Lord. And they assume that they came to these mature conclusions immediately because of their wit and their wisdom and their intellect and everybody else should be like them. The reality is all of us are slow 
to learn. And it takes a lot of growing in the faith, along with a lot of difficult trials, to come to maturity. But we forget that. And instead, what happens is, rather than humbling ourselves and remembering, I was once foolish, I was once stubborn, I was once not trusting the Lord, I once resisted the Spirit at every turn. Instead of remembering that, we get puffed up, and we look at this newer Christian with judgment in our hearts. But if we're truly the mature Christian that we claim to be, we should instead see and know the Spirit in us, pushing us, pushing us towards Christ-likeness. And what is Christ-likeness in that situation? Mercy, compassion, a desire to walk alongside this new Christian so that we might disciple them in Christ, not to make them more like us, but to follow Christ with them as we follow Christ. We're calling them, follow Christ with me. I'll tell you about all of my mistakes. I will tell you about all the trials that the Lord has taught me, all of these really valuable lessons through. And we walk together in Christ-likeness, growing in Christ, following Christ. That's the model we're given. So be patient in trials. Patiently wait for the fruit of righteousness the Lord is producing in you. And patiently wait for the fruit of righteousness he's producing in the church. The third command, I know that one was longer. I think that one was really important. The third command, though, we see in verse 8. It's very simple, three words. Establish your hearts. That's the command. When, how, where, why. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now, the last time I preached this text, it was a one-off. It was a part of our Advent series a few years ago, and I'm grateful that you don't remember it. I thought then that the call to patience in this text was a call to patiently wait on Christ's return. I was wrong. Do patiently wait for Christ's return. That's a right doctrine. This is the wrong text. That's not the point James is making here. We are waiting patiently on the fruit. Christ's return initiates the harvest of what we're waiting for, the fruit. He will return to harvest us, to bring us, the fruit, into his new creation. And his return, James says, is imminent and certain. And that certainty tells us the fruit will come prior to his return. He will return. He will return in the Father's time when the crop is ready. Now, how is this an encouragement? How does this help us to stand firm? Well, we aren't to be anxious about the pace of growth in our crop. The crop will be ready the fruit will, ripe, fruit will ripen, and he'll return when it does, in his own time, at his own pleasure. And that knowledge takes the pressure off, doesn't it? It takes the pressure. It gives us hope, and it helps us to establish or to strengthen our resolve as we wait. 
And it doesn't lead us to idleness. It doesn't lead us to apathy. It strengthens us to continue in the, tax, in the task to say, he's returning, I know he's returning, and he's going to come back when the crop is ready. I'm going to continue in the work and not worry about its readiness. Because that's up to him. That's up to the Spirit in us. I'm going to continue to put myself in a position to receive the early and the late rains, to grow at his bidding and his will. The work is worth the while. If Christ's return is near and it is certain, then we can endure our trials. Through the certain hope of his return, we can be patient in trials, and we know that he will accomplish his purposes in us. We can trust him. But this comes with a warning, the other side of the coin, if you will. His certain return is only good, it's only encouraging for those who are living in hopeful anticipation of it. Christ's return isn't good for everyone. At the beginning of this chapter, beginning of chapter 5, we, we examined those who presumptuously were living as if Christ were not returning. Do you remember that from last week? And we saw the life that leads to, and it's not good. You begin to stomp upon others as if they were weeds in your yard. Living as if Christ is not returning leads to a life that will end in woe. That's what verses, or verses 1 through 6 were in chapter 5. These, these woes of judgment that are coming upon those who live in that presumptuousness. Saying Christ is not returning, this life is all there is. There's a similar warning here in verse 9, and this is our fourth command of the text. Verse 9, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Now, the key to this understanding is that line, so that you may not be judged. If you are in Christ, there is no judgment. There is no condemnation. The Christian's desire, then, is to be found in Christ when he comes. But if we're not in Christ... If our hope is not in him, if our trust is not in him, as our faith is not in him, and then, then, then what's happening is we're not looking forward to, with anticipation, his return. And if that's the case, then our only hope is in getting all that we can out of this life. And of course, if that's our goal, then there will be people standing in the way of what we want, giving us reasons, ample reasons to murmur, murmur and grumble, and complain. So if you find yourself grumbling, that's what we're getting at here. This is a, 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 a check, a little bit of a, a, you know, check your vitals as we move our way through the end of James. If you find yourself grumbling, and I, and I realize we don't usually realize that we're grumbling, do we? It always takes someone else to hear it and say, you know what? You've been complaining a lot lately. So when you hear those words, 
from a brother or a sister in Christ who loves you. Do not say, no, I'm not. (laughs) Don't do that. Rather, assume I'm blind to my sin. Assume they're right. They're probably way more right. They see something in me that I can't see myself. This is a blind spot for me. Recognize they are a gift from God, and their rebuke might be a minor trial that I'm enduring now. Endure it. Their rebuke comes from love. So, in response, pause before you open your mouth. Pause and ask yourself, not am I grumbling, why am I grumbling? Is it something that I'm enduring? Am I being impatient with with God? God's working in me? Am I being impatient with another brother or sister in Christ in the church? Or far worse, am I grumbling because I'm placing my hope in something or someone other than Christ? And they're not pleasing me? I'm not getting it? So I'm upset and I'm grumbling and I'm afraid? The warning... James gives us, is that the judge is standing at the door and he's about to open the door right in the middle of your grumble fest. And that's not something we want to have to explain, is it? So James gives us that warning. And knowing that he is right outside the door is to cause us to pause before running our mouths with our complaints, assuming that everything that we complain is true. The fifth command is to follow the example of the prophets. Look at verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. There's the command. Take the prophets as an example. Now twice, just in this last few days, I've heard the question from you, why does James call us to consider the prophets' example rather than Christ's example? That's a good question, isn't it? Jesus is the example par excellence of suffering and patience. So why not look to Christ here? Well, there are two reasons I think James uses the prophets here instead of Jesus. The first is because Jesus uses the examples of the prophets. In Matthew 5, he said, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus says, look to the prophets, be like the prophets, endure like the prophets. And James says, yeah, what he said. Some some have speculated that James' primary point of reference in his letter is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, so Matthew 5 through 7. And if you sit down and read Matthew 5 through 7 in one sitting, and then you read James 1 through 5 in one sitting, you are going to see numerous parallels between these two texts. We see at least a few of them just in our text this morning. So it shouldn't surprise us much to see that James uses the prophets as examples of patience and suffering because Jesus also used those examples. James is simply obeying the Great Commission here, teaching us to observe all that Jesus commanded. Jesus said, be like the prophets. James says, be like the prophets. Jesus told me to tell you what he told me. But there's another reason I think James points us to the prophets here. The prophets were in a situation 
similar to ours. Jesus wasn't. Jesus had to suffer, but Jesus wasn't waiting on Jesus. The prophets were. The prophets were in a situation like ours in that they lived and they prophesied anticipating that the Christ was coming. All of the prophets prophesied of the coming Messiah in some way or another. His first coming was their hope. He was their peace. They lived their entire lives expecting the Messiah to come and fulfill God's promises. That was their hope. That's what they looked forward to. So whatever else they were enduring, and it was usually pretty awful, to them it was worthwhile because of their hope in the coming Christ. Even when kings or queens or entire nations despised them, they preached and they preached and they preached God's word knowing for certain that their reward was not in this life, it was in heaven. And now that those prophets have entered their reward, we look back at them altogether as Christians, we look back at them as heroes. Ahab and Jezebel, they're not prophets. I wasn't about to use them as an example. But they had power and they had wealth and they had prestige in this life. From a worldly perspective, they had it all. But we look back on Ahab and Jezebel and we don't look at them as heroes. We see Elijah, the man fed by ravens and widows. And we see him as the hero of the faith. That's why James says in verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Elijah and Jeremiah and Isaiah and Habakkuk and on and on, they all suffered patiently, but they remain steadfast. And we look, we look on them now as, as heroes of the faith. Then James turns from the prophets and he gives us another example of a, of a faithful brother that we consider blessed. He says, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You see that in verse 11? Or 12, rather. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Now I want you to notice something here. It does not say, the word, James does not say, you have heard of the patience of Job. We talk about that's kind of in, in, in not common parlance, but we used to say that. The patience of Job, oh, she has the patience of Job. That actually isn't a thing. He doesn't, he doesn't use that word. He doesn't use the same word as he did when he directed us to be patient or long-tempered. Steadfastness is the example that Job has for us, and steadfastness is different. It's more like endurance. It is the capacity to hold up or bear up in the face of difficulty. So if you're testing metals, patience would be the ability of the metal to stay cool under stress. Endurance or steadfastness would be its tensile strength, the, the ability not to break. You see the difference? They're different. Job is not an example of patience. Job got hot under pressure. He complained. He writhed. He wished he'd never been born on several occasions. He blamed God for his suffering. He lashed out at his friends and called them names. He questioned God just, God's justice and fairness and wisdom. Job was a sinner, but he never lost faith. He remained steadfast. Even in the midst of his suffering and in his complaining, he would say things to God like, you have granted me life and steadfast love and your care has preserved my spirit. That's a, that's, a, that's a word of faith, isn't it? He argued with God. 
He shook his fist at God, but he believed in God's sovereignty and he hoped in God and he never cursed God. So he would say things like, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my way to his face. Job remained steadfast in the faith, even when he was wrong about what was happening to him. Even when he questioned God, he continued to worship God, to acknowledge that God was God and Job was just a man. He always always had that posture. And because he endured in the faith to the end, God's purposes were met in him. That's why verse 11 says, you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James said at the beginning of his letter, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That is the picture of Job. Steadfastness, endurance to the end, had its full effect in his life. Though it was messy and imperfect, and sinful, he endured to the end in the faith. At the end of Job's story, after the Lord speaks authoritatively, finally, the end of Job, after he speaks and he corrects him, Job responds in humility, dust and ashes. Even though he had already lost everything in the world, that's the story of Job, how Job lost everything. He had lost everything in the world. There was still yet this lower level to get down to. And through the word of God to him, Job was brought to that lowest level. And he repented. That's, that's the, the rock bottom, if you will, that turned him to repentance. And it is here, when Job is at his lowest, when his heart is in that humble posture of repentance where Job realizes there's nothing in himself to boast of. And he confesses his sin to God, and that's when we see God's glorious response. And what is it? Compassion and mercy. God reveals his true nature, his character to Job when Job is at that lowest moment. God revealed his greatness, his majesty, his glory to Job in his speech to Job. Job repents, and then, God's, and then Job sees the, the glorious mercy and compassion of God. His true character that he reveals to Israel again and again. God is compassion and mercy. God forgives Job and he brings him into the double restoration. That's the end. And brothers and sisters, this is the point that God is bringing you to. That lowness. His aim in you, through you, is to reveal his compassion and mercy to you and bring you into the restoration. But to get there is not to go on a path of ascent higher and higher, reaching some self-actualization. Sanctification, rather, is a trail that descends lower and lower. You are most perfect. You are most complete. You are most useful to God, most glorifying to God when you are nothing. 
when all that is displayed in your life is the compassion and mercy of God. That's where Christ most fully shines in you. When you've been humbled further and further downward through the sanctifying trials of this life and you've endured it by the Spirit's power in you and the compassion and mercy of God are displayed in your life and your character is all Christ now and it's increased and increased and increased in you, that's when God's work is in you complete, perfect. That's why we look to Job, to be reminded of that. Now, our sixth and final command comes in verse 12. And it feels out of place. Why? Why is there this instruction about not making oaths here? You read this, and it's, I like to make cookies with my daughters. We like to follow recipes. So this is like, Okay, this is a six-step recipe. You're following a recipe for making chocolate chip cookies. You preheat the oven, you mix the dry ingredients, you mix the liquid ingredients, then you add them together, you fold in the chocolate chips, and then at the end of the recipe it says, and above all, no matter what you do, make sure you make your bed every morning. You're like, what, is, what does that have to do with the cookies? If you're reading this letter in little sections like that, it feels like that. But if you were to sit and read this letter all at once, all in one sitting, you would see this above all instruction, and you would see that it actually fits. Throughout the letter, James has been drawing on this lesson from Jesus that our words reveal our hearts. Our words are always that that temperature gauge that tell us where we're at. Simultaneously, he's pointing us towards the renewal of our hearts by the Spirit, by wisdom. So it makes sense that we'd see this here, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So just thinking back, just as judgmentalism and presumptuous planning and grumbling all reveal a heart that is not being made new, a heart that is not submissive to Christ, oath swearing reveals the same thing. Oath swearing reveals a heart that is impure, that it is dishonest and double-minded and, again, presumptuous. And those really are the issues that James is pressing. Because those are the, the bits of us that need to be rooted out, burned off, so that Christ might shine in us more freely, more gloriously. Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount that as a kingdom citizen belonging to him, we must be a people who know our place as his citizens. We're not sovereigns. We also must be people who are trustworthy and honest because Jesus is trustworthy and honest. And that humility, that knowing our place underneath underneath God is our sovereign, and that honesty are two characteristics that develop in us as we grow in maturity in Christ. And remember to be patient as you grow. Swearing an oath, then, is contrary to that. To swear to God or to swear on my life or to swear on my mother's grave is to, is to try and add to our, our words a measure of gravity and, and credibility from outside of ourselves to get someone else to believe us, to take us seriously. But those who are mature in Christ are already believable. 
already credible, already trustworthy. So we don't need external oaths to validate what we say. Secondly, though, these oaths show a presumptuousness because they assume an authority that we don't have. Right? To swear on your life assumes that you are sovereign over your own life. And we talked about that. You're not. God is. To swear to God means that you are calling down God's wrath upon you if you are speaking falsely. And to be willing to do something like that is to make light of the judgment of God, to to take God's name in vain. It makes a mockery of God's coming judgment. Remember, born-again Christians, growing in wisdom, maturing in Christ, we're to be a people of integrity. We don't have any reason to lie. Because our hope and security are in Christ, so what can you take from me here on earth? My hope is in heaven. And that should be evident in us. We're also a people who know that Jesus really is returning. You see the connection? He is returning. And he's returning as judge. And because we fear God... We know that's not something to make light of. That's not something to manipulate or to use to manipulate others. In fact, it is because he is returning that we seek to live in humility and integrity now. Growing in Christ-likeness, looking for the fruit that's growing in us as we await his return. We are patient until his return. And then we don't have to be patient anymore. But we look forward to his return. We look forward to the maturity that he's creating in us as we wait.